The scripture text for today's sermon is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, my heart's desire, my prayer to you is not only that any in the room and in the services downtown and north on Lord's Day morning would be born again through the living and abiding word, but that we as a people would be made free and bold and loving and winsome and fruitful in our telling the gospel to unbelievers. You have been good to us to bring us on a long and circuitous route through thinking about the new birth. And here we are near the end of this series. And we want to be effective midwives of many births. And so God, show us what that will involve. What do we do when it is miracle that we cannot achieve? This is not unclear in your word. I ask that you would come behind it and empower it in this message and transform your people into those who taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The biblical truth that saving faith is only possible if God causes you to be born again, may fill you with feelings of empowerment and boldness and courage and daring and joy and freedom, or that truth may fill you with feelings of perplexity and doubt and pointlessness, and futility, and paralysis in your personal evangelism. If the truth that God causes people to be born again and thus enables them to believe on Him for salvation fills you with feelings of Futility and pointlessness and disillusionment and paralysis, your feelings are not in sync with the Bible. And you should ask the Lord to change your feelings. I do that every day of my life. This is the way I live the Christian life. 
I wonder if that's the way you live the Christian life. My feelings are daily out of sync with the truth in some measure. My feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings don't define what is true. God's Word defines what is true. Feelings, my feelings are echoes and responses of what I perceive to be the case, and they are regularly lousy, inadequate, half-baked, no-count, misguided feelings. And when that happens, i got to get on my face, lift my heart and my hands and say, God, this is in the Bible. Bring my affections into line with it. Release me. Replace all this disillusionment and all this paralysis and all this sense of pointlessness with a sense of empowerment and a sense of joy and a sense of freedom and a sense of courage and boldness and winsomeness in my personal evangelism. I don't know any other way to live the Christian life than to get in the face of my feelings and say, Wrong! Shape up! Get fixed! According to this Word! That's the way I live the Christian life. Every single day. How do you do it? I wonder how you do it. Or do you just let your feelings dictate theology? Bible. Truth. Well, that's going to get you in big trouble. Our feelings must be brought into sync with truth. And that's why we have the Holy Spirit. If we didn't have to be changed at the heart level and only the head level, He would not be needed. We need an impossible thing to happen to us. We need to like what we don't like. Treasure what we don't treasure. Enjoy what we don't enjoy. Be thrilled about things we're bored by. That's why we need a miracle in our lives. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. This is daily Christian living. Reading our Bible. Discovering at the moment as we're reading our Bible that my heart is not in sync with that truth. And then shutting our Bible or leaving it open, and saying, fix me, change me, alter me, go down, kill me if you can't, but don't let me live out of sync with the Bible. Don't let my heart stay out of sync with the Bible. That's the way I live the Christian life. Every day. That's my battle. I don't know any other battle that exists besides that one in the Christian life. <laughs> if I could get my heart totally in sync with the Bible... I'd be sinless. Well, we've got a lot of work to do on ourselves. And I hope that you see how the work is to be done. I want you to be learning with me as I try to grow in this, how to avail yourself of the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death feelings that are out of sync with Scripture and to awaken feelings that are in sync with Scripture. That is the challenge of the Christian life. That's what the new birth gets started, and that's what sanctification means, is to bring our hearts into conformity with the truth of Scripture. So may you be sitting there praying, God, i got all kinds of feelings right now that are not in sync with the Bible. Would you, during this service, come and change me? That's what I'm praying. Because I'm sure, before this sermon's over, I'm going to have some feelings that I'm going to have to repent about. Sometimes I'll let them out with my mouth, and then I repent doubly. So I assume you're in the same boat. Okay, here we are. 19 messages into the new birth. And, Lord willing, two to go. This one, and next weekend, and we're done with this theme, though never done with the reality, right? We'll be back to this over and over again forever. But as far as the series goes, 
these last two messages are it. Now, here's where we're ending. I have felt this burden from the beginning, and I believe the Holy Spirit has confirmed it. You'll have to judge that because that's not my ultimate call. The focus in these last two messages is on the implications for your personal gospel telling, your personal evangelism. I don't know what words turn you off, so I don't know what to avoid here. (laughs) Um, You're opening your mouth and commending Christ. I want to know what the doctrine of the new birth, as we have seen it in the last 19 messages, means for that. So when you leave tonight and you're with an unbeliever at Perkins or on the phone or on an email, how should you think and feel about, okay, only God can cause him to be born again, and I'm not God, so there's nothing I can do. Or what can I do? So my question is, how does God's decisive role in causing people to be born again relate to my indispensable role in midwifery? You know that word? I didn't know that word. That's what midwives do, and midwives assist births, and what can we do at the birth or to help the birth happen? Is there anything that a human can do to make a divine miracle come to pass? What should we be doing to help unbelievers be born again? Simple. Everybody got that sentence? What should we be doing to help unbelievers be born again? And the, the biblical answer is just crystal clear. And this is not a complicated answer, not theologically mysterious whatsoever. I'll put it in a little sentence and then we'll unpack a third of it for almost all the time and two thirds of it for a few minutes of the time. Because we've already dealt with the other piece more. The answer. Tell people the good news of Christ from a heart of love and a life of service. That's it. Tell people the good news of Christ. Tell people the gospel. Tell tell people, open your mouth and tell people the gospel from a heart of love and a life of service. That's it. Now, let me give you a little glimpse of that before we look at 1 Peter 1. You don't have to go here. I'll read it to you. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants. That's a little picture of what I'm talking about. What we proclaim is Christ. I'm not Lord. He's Lord. Risen from the dead. Having died for sinners, He is Lord, and I am your servant. Now, implications, just briefly, of that sentence. Arrogant, self-exalting, proclamation of Christ, with no sense of brokenness. contradicts the gospel. In other words, I'm saying that from a heart of love and from a life of service is the only way your heart and your life won't contradict what you're saying. Why deliver a message if two-thirds of the message is contradicting the one-third? You don't want to do that. And... This is, I think, as serious. A silent servanthood that never speaks the gospel contradicts love. There's a lot of that in the world today. Silent serving. Silent serving as though that were love. Leaving people without the articulation of the gospel, which is the power of God unto their salvation. 
It's not love. It looks loving. The world certainly wants us to do it that way. But that's not the biblical way. It's not God's way. It's not Christ's way. We have mouths. And the mouths are to be filled with truth. It is the truth that sets people free. It isn't being treated nicely alone. Nobody gets saved by being treated nicely. They get saved by hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If we don't open our mouths and commend Christ, we're not loving Him, no matter what we're doing with our hands. So that's a little glimpse of what I mean. And now let's go to the text. This is 1 Peter 1.22. We've been in this text uh, in these 19 messages, we've returned here three times because I cannot get over the supreme importance of verse 23. But I'm going to start with verse 22 and just give you a little review. And if this sounds uh, perplexing to those who haven't been in on the messages, uh, sorry. But you'll have to go and get them from the messages. I can't preach them again. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth... For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. Purification of your soul is the new birth, I argued. There are reasons. Obedience to the truth, the instrument by which it happens, is faith. Through, in, faith, in, the believing it is happening. Obedience to the, the truth is the gospel. Obedience to the truth is faith. And that, through that, we are born again. For a sincere love of the brothers means that when we're born again, there's a goal to it. It's going to love. It's going somewhere. It's producing this heart of love and this life of service, which is why commending Christ to produce it in others when it's not here contradicts the message. So it's aiming at love. The new birth, purification of the soul, obedience to the truth is aiming at love. And so now having said that, he simply says, uh, do that. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So since you've been born again, since your heart has been purified, the Holy Spirit has moved in, faith has arisen. Now live that out in lives of love. Now verse 23 is the word that to me is one of the most important words in all of the Bible especially concerning the relationship between God's work in the new birth and your work as a midwife to help it happen. Verse 23, 1 Peter 1. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, namely, I believe, namely, through the living and abiding word of God. I think that's the most important statement in the Bible on the relationship between the new birth and your role in how it comes about. Because it says, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. I just don't think any sentence is more important than that one. Not if you care about other people who aren't yet born again. If you know God does it, and you desperately want it to be done and can't make it happen, this becomes really important. Because it says, you were, and they will be, born again through the living and abiding Word of God. Now, the fullness of the implications of that do not land on us until we see what he means by the Word of God. Because you could be real hazy here. The Word of God in the Bible means all kinds of things. He created the universe by the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word of God. The promises made to Israel in Romans 9, 6 are called the Word of God. Um, the Ten Commandments are called the Word of God in Mark 7. What does Peter mean? By the word of God. Well, first thing he says in verse 23 is, is living and abiding. I take that to mean 
It has the power in it to give new life, new birth, new life, and it's abiding, meaning the life it gives, it'll never stop sustaining. Oh, this is huge for your life in an ongoing way. Not just your knowing what to do when you want somebody to be saved, but in an ongoing way that His Word is living and through it life happens, but abiding, meaning, and when that happens, the Word that created the life and thus sustains the life never goes away. Which is why when you get down into chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you kind of hunger for this every day. Because your life hangs on it. Man cannot live by bread alone. He must have the Word of God daily. And this isn't automatic. And I believe totally in eternal security. But not automatic eternal security. Born again people. Love the Word of God. Feed on the Word of God. God can guarantee that a person never starved to death. But it doesn't mean that they can stop eating. He simply guarantees they'll always eat. And He's God, so He can guarantee that they'll always eat. And so, He can guarantee that the abiding Word will sustain the life it has created. Now, he comes to verse 24 and quotes Isaiah 40. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of God is not like grass. I haven't seen any green things yet in my house. I mean, in my yard. But I suspect before next weekend I will. It's probably going to be the hosta. They're really brutal. They got muscle. And they will die next fall. And then there'll be some tulips soon and some daffodils soon. And they'll be beautiful for how long? Two weeks, maybe. And then they're gone. They look so, those tulips look so pitiful when they're losing their petals. Plunk, plunk, plunk. So beautiful, so short. That's what he's saying. The Word of God's not like that. Anything else you bank on is like that. Flesh means human. Flesh means everything but God and His Word. Life is created by the Word and it lasts forever because the Word lasts forever. That's the point. It's, it's not a perishable seed, but imperishable. Now he comes to verse 25, and this is the most important definition of what he meant by the Word of God. He says in verse 25, second half of the verse, this Word, namely the Word through which you were born again, this Word is the gospel, the good news that was preached to you. Now, that is crystal clear. It's not the the Ten Commandments. It's not the promises made to Israel. It's not a lot of things. It's not the whole Bible, even. This is the gospel. And Paul is pretty clear about what the core of it is. It goes like this. The Son of God came into the world clothed with human flesh as a God-man, lived a perfect life, and died in the place of sinners so that all their sin is covered and it is finished. And the wrath of God has been absorbed in His suffering and the guilt of man has been born in His suffering And a life of completed righteousness has been finished on the cross which can be imputed to us. And the grave is empty as we sang so powerfully here. And now we can have eternal life because, this is an essential piece of the good news, because all of that, 
Christ's birth, Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's absorbing wrath, Christ's providing righteousness, Christ's taking away guilt, Christ's providing forgiveness of sins. All of that is offered freely to absolutely everybody who believes for free. For free. By faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone as revealed in the Scriptures alone. That's the gospel. And through it, we are born. Again, he says. People are always trying to improve on this gospel. Good night, the books that are coming out these days. I'll just say an opinion, which I think is biblical. This news, this news is 2,000 years old. That's funny kind of news, right? News is news because it's new. Usually, there is some news. And I don't want you to lose the flavor of news. Frankly, too many of us share our faith and don't share news. Share our faith. I don't want to know your faith. I want to know news that saves me. I want to know news that conquers my fear of death. I want to know news that defeats the devil. I want to know if something's happened. That's news. The gospel is news. It is today, 2,000 years later, the greatest news that is or ever will be. You can't improve upon it. There is nothing greater. I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to stand up and tell me something greater than the gospel. Some news that is better. Anybody want to take me up on that? I'll just do a little debate here if you want to. And if, if you're watching this, I'll tell you whether anybody stands up. Anybody want to? Something greater than the good news of what Christ has achieved in his death and his resurrection and his reign, his substitution, his bearing the wrath of God, his taking away sin, his providing perfect righteousness, all to be enjoyed by faith alone, apart from works, something better than that. Come on. All right, go ahead. He did it for me. All right, that makes it better for you. So did you hear that? Somebody stood up and said, he did it for me. And I like that response a lot. Okay, I just want to make the point that news that is 2,000 years old is not boring, it's not inferior, it's not less news. And here's the catch. Millions of people don't know this news. If they know about Christianity, they got it all wrong, most of them. They turn into all kinds of religion and all kinds of works and could night the brilliant people in NPR. They don't understand it. And the less brilliant people in other stations, <laughs> they don't understand it. Stick to my manuscript here. Okay, here's the point. Here's the point from verse 23. And it's immensely important if you care about somebody who's not born again. Got any kids that way? Got a dad? Got a wife? Got an uncle? Got a brother? If anyone is going to be born again, it will happen by hearing the gospel through somebody's mouth. That's huge. If anybody you care about is ever going to be born again and come to faith in Jesus, it will happen by somebody opening their mouth and explaining the gospel. I did it in about a minute. And then I unpacked it for another little minute. You can do it in a minute. Now, most of those words will be unintelligible to the unbeliever. So that's why you say it and then you... If they'll let you, you answer some questions and you explain more. And if they'll let you have a Bible study with them, and you do it that way. You just keep on pushing in with truth because you know verse 23 is right. We are born again through the living and abiding Word, namely 
the gospel. So God causes the new birth through the seed of the word, the gospel. God brings about the new birth through you telling people the gospel. God regenerates people through the news about who Christ is and what he's done. God gives new life to dead hearts through your words when you speak the gospel. I'll tell you, when I think about this, my significance really explodes. And I hope yours does too. Can you believe it? God has ordained that no baby Christian gets born without another Christian saying something to him. Please don't take this too far and say, oh, can't you read a tract or can't you read the Bible or can't? Of course you can read it. That's putting your testimony on paper. I believe in email evangelism and letter evangelism and tract evangelism and this evangelism that I carry everywhere I go. I believe in all kinds of it, but you've got to make it known. Now, the question for us is, back to the question, how are we going to become the kind of people who tell the good news from a heart of love, from a life of service? How does it become not just a conviction that you walk out with from this service, but a passion? Convictions are good. Passion's better. Passions tend to overflow. Passions tend to take control of you. So a passion for lost people and a passion for the gospel would be better than a conviction that this is so. And I suspect I'm powerless here, but the Word of God is not powerless. And so I'm going to read more of it. I'm going to give you a few more examples of just the same thing I've already said. Sermon could end here, but I don't think God is done. I'm going to read some more. Here's what James, the Lord's brother, said. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's exactly the same meaning as 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23, we're born again by the living and abiding word of God. James says, he brought us forth by the truth of his own will. This one you can look at with me. 1 Peter 2.9, probably across the page in your Bible. 1 Peter 2.9, chapter 2, verse 9. Nine verses later in the context of what we've just read. You are a chosen race, you Christians, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And here's the key that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you're born again, you're called out of darkness into marvelous light. I wonder if you feel like you're enveloped in marvelous light right now. The light of truth, the gospel truth, the glory of Christ surrounding you, surrounding your heart, surrounding your mind. And you're saying, I'm in light and it's marvelous. I was in darkness and now I'm in light and it's marvelous. It's glorious. It's wonderful. One of the reasons we don't tell the gospel is because you don't feel that. You don't feel it. It may not have happened. Or it may have and the devil's beaten up on you and you need some unusual deliverance so that you can say, I have passed out of darkness into marvelous light, and that's where I live. I'm a sinner. In fact, the light really makes me feel dirty lots of times. But, oh, it is a light of forgiveness and a light of joy and a light of justification and hope and power. I love this marvelous light in which I live. And and if so, then it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's how people get born again. When Christians proclaim the excellencies of the light of Christ in which they live. That's how people get born again. That's why this is so important to see in verse 9. Other people are born again when they hear you describe the light of the gospel. And when they're born again, 
They move from darkness to marvelous light. They see Christ for who he is in glory. They treasure him for who he is. They magnify him for who he is. And your joy is complete in their joy in him. So if you wonder how does this all relate to the pursuit of joy, there it is. If you're settled right now with the joy that you have in Jesus apart from anybody else's coming to have joy in Jesus, you're about to lose it. Just like the Dead Sea grows nothing because there's no outlet. Fish die when they get to the Dead Sea, and so does joy. You can feel it for a while, but not forever. Because Christian joy is the joy of God. And the joy of God spills over in sharing His Son. And the Son dies in order that other people might have joy in Christ. That's the kind of joy that comes into your heart. And therefore, if you bottle it up, and just so me and God, it's so good to know God, and whether anybody else enjoys knowing God is not relevant to my joy. It's not His joy. That's another thing. Religious thing, aesthetic thing. So, if you see through your testimony or somebody else's testimony or your influence in some way, someone else come to rejoice in your Christ, then your joy in their joy in Christ is complete. That's why we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. So what will it take, Bethlehem? What will it take for us to become uh, thousands of folks? What will it take for the Twin Cities and the Christians here? This is a church-saturated area. What will it take for all the Christians here to uh, be passionate about telling the gospel to unbelievers? Seeking opportunities, following through when we have them, taking risks of getting egg on your face, being rejected. What, what, what must happen? Well, that would be a sermon series, wouldn't it? All the ways that we justify not sharing our faith, our gospel with others. Well, here's one possibility of how it might happen. God might do to us what he did to Jerusalem when they didn't share their faith. Namely, he raised up Stephen to be so angelic in his countenance and so irresistible in his witness that they killed him. And out from his killing spread what? A great persecution. And because of the persecution, according to Acts, all of the Christians except the apostles were driven out of Jerusalem. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And then a most amazing verse takes your breath away if you really... Put yourself in their shoes. This is Acts 8, verse 4. It goes like this. Now, those who were scattered, I'm going to give this my own translation, went about gospeling the word. That's the Greek word is to tell the gospel, and the direct object is word. Gospeling the word. Telling as good news the word. That'd be the better English word. Gospeling is not a, a verb in English. So telling the good news of the word. Telling the good news. Now, do you hear what that just said? And ask yourself if you're there yet. And if you're not, pray. Here, here's what happens. Pick your favorite teacher in the Twin Cities. And uh, 
huge, violent opposition to the Christian church happens, and they, they isolate the, the key teachers and they kill them, shoot them. And then they start going from house to house, see who's a Christian. And all the Christians are driven to Iowa, Wisconsin, and South and North Dakota, looking for a place to stay. Relatives and friends and other Christians, not hard to find a place to stay, probably. And you left books and cars and CDs and grandfather's clocks and houses your parents lived in for 40 years and most of your clothes. And everywhere you go, you're telling good news. You're supposed to be telling bad news. That's bad news. Let's all complain about the bad news in Minneapolis. And they didn't do it. This is weird. I'll read it to you again. Now those who were scattered. I've got to go back and read 8.1 again. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 4, Now those who were scattered went everywhere telling good news about the Word. Maybe that's the way the Lord will have to do it. Will there be any takers? Oh my, are we a complaining people. Something bad happened to us. Why'd you do that, God? I mean, the Apostle Paul was of another ilk, and so were those early Christians. They lost their houses. They lost their possessions. They lost their hometown. They are refugees with very little, and they are going everywhere saying, There's good news! There's good news! There's good news! Because they were blown away by what had happened a few years ago on the cross. Absolutely blown away by the death of the Son of God and the resurrection of the Son of God and the free offer of the gospel that all of my sins are forgiven and I have eternal life no matter what anybody does to me. They were so blown away. You can have my house, have my family, have my health, have my car, have my books. I've got the gospel. Maybe, maybe that's the way he'll have to do it. To really find out who we are. And who's going to say when everything else falls away, I've just got good news left. It's all I've got. Don't have anything else. Just good news. I hope, I hope we can move I'll give you one more way he might do it, and I'll close. Because it's in the text. I made that one up by going back to Acts. But this one is in the text, and so let's go to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I'm closing with the question, what should we do? I mean, you're sitting there feeling guilty, right? Um, what should we do? Um, and I want you to feel free. I want you to feel empowered. I want you to feel that God's gone before you. He's got miracles to work through your simple mouth. Every bumbling testimony is a glory in heaven written down to your account someday, no matter what. And if anybody spits in your face or makes fun of you, that's written down too, and he will repay you 10,000 times. Just believe that. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Calling us newborn infants is not, in this context, a comment about our spiritual immaturity. That's 1 Corinthians 3. That's not what this means. All he's doing here is saying, okay, now that we're newborn, now that we're born again, according to verse 23, through the Word, there's something to be desired. 
daily. And I want you to desire it, Peter says, the way a baby desires milk. That's the analogy. He's not saying you're a baby spiritually. He's saying you may be the most mature person in the world and you must daily de desire this milk the way a baby desires milk. And the word milk doesn't mean soft food, not heavy doctrine. None of that's going on in this text. This text is all about a desire for something And the analogy is, little babies desire milk, you should desire it like that. How do they desire milk? Every day, cry if they don't get it, need it for strength, wah, 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 demanding, I gotta have this. That's the way you should want something. What? What? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, I think Peter is saying by this double phrase, pure and spiritual. You see that phrase? The desire of the pure spiritual milk. That word spiritual is not the word that contrasts with fleshly. It's the word that contrasts with literal. Spiritual meaning as opposed to literal meaning. So when he says spiritual milk, he's calling attention to the fact that he means something by the milk that's not milk. And in the context and the nature of that word, if you knew it, I'm going to argue with the King James Version, which is pretty good authority here, and many commentators, it's the milk of the Word. It's the milk of the Word. And you, it, you can just see it flowing in the text. Verse 23, you were born again through the living and abiding Word, and now newborn babes, like newborn babes, earnestly desire this pure and this, this symbolic milk, namely the Word. And then he adds this, just as newborn people daily desire the word, they do it if they have tasted that the Lord is good. It does not say if they have committed themselves to the fact that the Lord is good. It does not say if they have decided to believe that the Lord is good. It does not say if they have come to the conclusion logically that the Lord is good. It says if they've tasted it. In other words, I'm asking you, does your heart have spiritual taste buds that when the biblical portrayals of Jesus land on the heart, the heart says, That is more desirable than anything. That's the evidence of being born again. Taste buds are created. They were dead. You taste him 15 years ago or before you were saved, you taste him and say, boring, disinteresting, mythological. But when you're born again, taste buds are created on the heart. Or you could say eyes are created in the heart. If you went to Ephesians 1. Seeing they do not see, and ears are created on the heart. Hearing they do not hear. There's a hearing and a non-hearing. There's a seeing and a non-seeing. There's a tasting and a non-tasting. Do you taste? And so my concluding prayer for us, before next week I give you really practical, concrete, I hope helpful suggestions, is for us to fight this at the deepest level. And the deepest level is taste of heart. Do you, when you are exposed to a biblical portrayal of Christ, does your heart, like a taste bud, tasting honey or, or whatever you like, put it, imagine, patiently say, that's the best I've ever had. I have to be a connoisseur of Christ's. He's the real deal. That's better than money. 
That's better than success. That's better than staying alive for retirement. That's better than anything. That's what the taste that he is good does. And then you desire more of the word and you see more of him and your taste gets better and you desire more of the word and your taste gets better. And as you grow up, I'm 62. I hope, I hope I, I live long enough just to taste him full enough so that when I meet him, I won't be regretful. This is where we need to get serious. We spread the seed of God's mighty regenerating power if we've tasted that the Lord is good. The Lord is our delight. The Lord is our bread. The Lord is our water. The Lord is our wine. <laughs> I close with this wine piece because I thought, this, this is good. I don't drink. I don't drink. I'm scared to drink. Frankly, I am. I'm a real addictive personality. I, I eat a whole pack of gum at one time. <laughs> so I'm staying away from anything that's looking like, you know, addictions, except maybe diet pop, and I've got to be careful there. Um, People on the airplane, they drink, and, and you, know, you know what the first sign is that they're, they've drunk too much of that stuff on an international flight? They talk a lot. See where I'm going? I want you to get drunk. Taste! Taste this thing. And then when you found the real deal, just drink it like crazy until you're so drunk you can't control your tongue in public. And you're talking about him all the time. Well, don't take that where it shouldn't go. Take it where it should go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to be such a Christ lover that I can say I've tasted and seen that he's good. He's better than anything. And therefore, to commend him is love. Make me a better evangelist. Obey the command given to Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. And I pray that all of us, even those who feel totally nonverbal and totally weak and totally non-bold, would, would feel freed that they don't have to save anybody. They can't save anybody. You are the one who causes the new birth. And we have a simple task. Tell the gospel. Tell it often and tell it well. I pray that you'd help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.